Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to another episode of Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans and pop culture. Uh, before I get started, I do have a few notes about this episode. First, you'll probably notice that once the interview starts, uh, the beginning was clipped off a little bit, and then at the end, there's a little bit clipped off as well, where uh, the guest does his sign-offs, and... Um, that's because as I was editing, I was a little careless and, and lost <laughs> those clips there. But uh, I swear you get all the juice and all the good stuff anyway. Second, I may sound a bit tired at the beginning of the episode because I had actually just gotten back from a flight uh, from Philadelphia the night before that got really, really delayed. Uh, I didn't get back into Seattle until about midnight. Um, and I thought I was going to have to cancel the interview in the first place. But uh, my guest, Vijay Iyer, he's one of my favorite jazz musicians. Uh, ever and right now and so I really didn't want to cancel it so I wanted to make sure that I was able to get the episode out anyway so if I sound a bit tired that is why moving on so in Asian American news this week uh, Nickelodeon recently revealed that Joshua De La Cruz a Filipino American actor will be the host of the new series slash reboot uh, Blues Clues and You this is obviously really exciting news um, as it gives young Asian American kids the opportunity to watch a show that features uh, an Asian American as well. De La Cruz said himself, I didn't see anyone who looked like me on American film and television. More specifically, there weren't any Asian actors uh, that played Americans. I'd always felt that if you wanted to be on television, you had to know how to fight or to have an accent, and it was incredibly alienating. Needless to say, having De La Cruz be on Blue's Clues while I was growing up uh, or maybe when some of my younger cousins was growing up, would have had a pretty huge influence on my life. So I'm glad that a future generation of kids, uh, Blues Clues fans, are going to be able to have this influence. I had said this before, but this week's guest is musician Vijay Iyer. Vijay is not only a Grammy-nominated jazz pianist, he's also a professor at Harvard uh, and a Mac MacArthur Fellow, which is also known as the Genius Grant, which is only given to 20 or 30 people a year. Um, so obviously, and, and you will hear it when he's speaking, he is uh, incredibly intelligent and thinks and speaks of music in a way that I haven't heard anyone talk uh, like before. We talk about how classical music in his hometown affected his early life, learning how to play piano by ear by listening to Michael Jackson and Prince, uh, how the great Herbie Hancock influenced his approach of music, and the politics of jazz. The highlight of the episode for me uh, is, again, the way he talks about music and performance. Um, whenever he talks about it, you could really hear the brilliance that's going on like in his mind. And again, as a musician myself, it was really uh, fascinating and inspiring hearing somebody speak like that uh, for something that I'm also so passionate about. Again, apologies on the weird intro to the interview and the lack of an outro on the interview, but I swear it's still a good chat and I think you guys will all enjoy it. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @ricebreakfast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash pod. And you can go to riceforbreakfast.com for more ways to listen. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, eat your rice for breakfast. Well, I grew up in, Ro I grew up in Rochester, New York, which is um, it's not, it's it's a few hundred miles from New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of a small but uh, busy town. Um, there's a lot of music there. Um, especially classical music and so I kind of grew up with uh, you know I grew actually my first instrument was violin and I grew up taking violin lessons and then playing in orchestras and 
there was a youth orchestra. There was a kind of like strong classical music culture there. Mm-hmm. Do you know Called, why? I don't know. Was there any reason that you could particularly point out as to why there was a strong classical music culture? Well, there's a school of music there, Eastman School of Music. Oh, okay. And there's a Philharmonic. They have a Philharmonic. And uh, somehow a lot of musicians had kind of, I mean, in that, on that side of um, things, like the classical side had kind of um, found a home, made a home there. So, so there was enough to uh, keep me busy studying that stuff. And, um, and I started playing piano by ear around the same time as when I was really little. And so both of those things kind of progressed in tandem. You know, me taking violin lessons and then me kind of wilding out on my sister's piano. <laughs> so, so, right. Uh, uh, did yeah. you, en- so did you particularly enjoy violin? Like, do you remember enjoying it right away when you started learning? Or was that sort of something that after a couple of years and when you realized you're, you know, that you enjoyed doing it? I don't know if I was, I don't think I was particularly into it until, mm-hmm. um, until I started playing with other people. And that was when I was, uh, I think my, the first time I was in an orchestra, I was in fifth grade and that was kind of a new, you know, the way you study classical music usually is by learning these solo pieces and, neurotically trying to get them perfect mm-hmm. and kind of driving yourself crazy doing that <laughs> right. and uh and it's like very isolating but when you start playing in ensembles and it's the opposite you know and suddenly there's a sociality to it there's like a sense of community or a sense of belonging or you're like you're a part of something you know mm-hmm. and uh and it's also just this communal experience of making sounds together you know which is actually something kind of primal i think about us as a yeah. species you know that no, no, very, very primal bond. you know it, yeah. you just saw a huge rock concerts last night in yeah. philadelphia so you know i mean it's like uh, yeah there's something like religious right about experiencing um or, or performing music in, in front of people uh and among people and yeah just and among doing people. it's not even about performance it's actually just about um, sharing, you know, sharing the the experience with somebody else. Uh, I mean, even even I mean, like my memories from that time are not so much of the performances as of the rehearsals, because that it's like you spend you, know, you rehearse every day for a whole academic year and put on two concerts or something like that. So that's it was more like that, like um, just the the experience of being in a room with. Uh, our bows more or less moving in the same direction. <laughs> it was always a little chaotic with, you know, eight-year-old or whatever it was. Right, yeah. But, I... um, <laughs> but uh, no, it was, you know, it's a, it, there's just a sort of thrill of being a part of something larger than yourself. I right. Think that's really what it is. And, it, and then the fact that it's about, like, synchronizing your actions with someone else. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I started uh, playing saxophone when I was in fourth grade, and I cannot imagine my parents having sit through whatever awful excuse of a uh, recital <laughs> in fourth grade, yeah. like eight saxophones and, you know, six trumpets and a trombone, all like pretty out of tune, just 
trumping along with <laughs> whatever yeah. we were supposed to be playing. But uh, I appreciate them for doing it. You know, it's good. So yeah. were your parents... What I can say about like music that children are learning is that all the pieces are mercifully short. <laughs> so it's like, it may seem like you're sitting through it, but it actually is over pretty fast. Right. So, <laughs> you know, That's good. I'll you keep... can have like a whole parade of 20 kids yeah. do a recital in a half hour or something right. for right. each play. I'll keep that in mind for uh, the future. Uh, so were your parents musicians? Um, was music a, a big thing in your family? Uh, they aren't. No, there's no one in my family who's a professional mm-hmm. musician. But, um, but maybe on my father's side, there's one person who's a sun tour player in India. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, you know, they both come from huge families, so that's more like a blip. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. One, I think, cousin by marriage or something. It's a, it's a statistic but, uh, probability, yeah, yeah, right. sure. But um, but I did notice, I have noticed over the years that there's actually a lot of musicality in my family, especially on my father's side. And, um, you know, there's stories about him being a great singer when he was little, but he was not, no one, no one is encouraged to become a musician certainly not in india and hardly even here you know oh yeah so it's not really something that anyone would like recommend to their kids or something so and especially i think in india it's kind of seen as just you know lowly and it's not something that uh, people aspire to it's also seen uh, it tends to be in at least in indian classical music it's like you are born into a musical family and then you just take up the family trade, you know, like uh, you play tabla because your father played tabla and because his father played tabla and so on, you know, like you're part mm-hmm. of this lineage. Uh, so, and, and then anyone else, most people are not born into a situation like that. So then mu- music making is kind of this alien pursuit. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's just not something that was uh, valued enough for people in our family or in most families to pursue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pretty rare thing. Yep. And it's mostly it's just kind of discouraged in general yeah. culture. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I think a lot of people can feel that way about their. You know, did you happen to see the movie Coco, the the Pixar Disney movie? You know, my daughter just saw it, but I haven't seen it. Okay, yeah. I mean, so the the plot line is is actually something very similar to that. I thought it was a, I thought it was really good. It was it was a good watch. You know, uh, what's funny is that, um, you know, I do a lot of interviews with yeah. white guys, basically, <laughs> like a lot of white <laughs> men interview me, um, and a common question they ask is like, "What did your, what did your, parentheses Asian parents?" think when you became a musician uh-huh and the cliche is that like no asian parent would let their kid become a musician right but then i just sort of usually have to turn it back on them like well what would you do if your kid became a musician because <laughs> that's the real question right like who actually wants their child to have this kind of precarious career in the arts in the united states right uh did you ask to play violin when you were younger or did you um was that again yeah, something I mean, that your parents were, you know, they had the instinct sort of to, to have you play and, and learn? I don't know. I mean, 
I was three. So sure, yeah, I guess you the story is that that day I said I wanted to play violin. I don't know if I would have said that another day, or if I <laughs> had some affinity for it because it begins with V and my first name begins with V. Sure. Like, I don't know. Could have been any reason, but uh, this. You know, the other thing is that my sister started piano at the same time. She's a few okay. years older than me. So I think it was that they were trying to get both of us involved in music right? together. And so it was maybe about doing something complimentary. You know, so, uh, and her name begins with P. So she got to play piano. Oh, I, don't know. I don't know what it was about. But, uh, the alliteration yeah. sounded nice in your family. Exactly. Vijay yeah. the she violinist. Was, yeah. 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 She was six and I was three. So Got it. So, uh, but yeah, and then inevitably being, the little brother i just started playing her piano of course yeah and and you started learning by ear do you remember um were there any songs you tried learning by ear right away was it whatever she played or things you heard on the radio or things like that my sister and i kind of dominated the stereo so we sort of like i think the first record she got this is in the 70s okay so um <laughs> it was the soundtrack to saturday night fever that was her first first vinyl LP, double LP, and um, so we she used to play it a lot, and so I probably like probably one of the things I did was trying to try to play melodies along with that, you know, on the piano. Uh, I ended up um, so you know we would play like stuff that was on the radio or whatever rock and pop albums that my sister got and then i remember the first record i got was actually a party favor at a birthday party and it was a 45 which is like one it's like a single you know a vinyl single um of this song called electric avenue by eddie grant <laughs> yeah it's a classic yeah <laughs> yes so, and then i was like into uh michael jackson who was a giant you know, he was like towering. Yeah, you amazing. Have, you have that great. Uh, you have the great rendition of human nature. Human, human yeah. nature, yeah. Because yeah. that hit me pretty hard when it. You know, like his that whole, all of his stuff off the wall, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the stuff with Jackson Five, but Thriller kind of hit that sweet spot when I was ten, and or yeah, ten or eleven. I think ten. Because Purple Rain came out around that time, too. So both of them hit, kind of hit me right at the right time where I was sort of trying to figure out, um, a little bit more seriously trying to figure things out on the piano. This was like, I'd, by then I'd been banging on it for a few years, so I started to notice that if I banged on certain things at the same time, it would be like a chord, you know, like, oh, that's a <laughs> minor chord. <laughs> right. So... Um, yeah, so I sort of started to figure out how to play along with certain songs on the radio. I'm pretty sure it was a lot of pop music like that, but as particularly Michael and Prince. And then also my sister's friends were really into the Beatles. So I ended up kind of, I don't know if it was willingly or not, but I sort of ended up learning a lot of Beatles songs. It's funny. I think a lot of the Beatles were kind of the same way, right? Like, I, there's that story of Paul McCartney and John Lennon. They were listening to a song on the radio and they couldn't figure out like what chord it was, so they, you know, took a 
a bus to downtown Liverpool and had to go to this music shop where I was like, what is this chord? And, you know, the music, <laughs> the music teacher's like, oh, this is like a, you know, A minor seven. And they're like, oh, like finally we, you know, we, we put the pieces together. <laughs> we so. found the Holy Grail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Information was harder to come by back in the day. You know, it wasn't like you just ask Siri or something. Right. <laughs> Looked up Tazer. Like, Alexa, play right. me an A minor seven. Um, <laughs> and were you interested in jazz? Um, during this time as well or have you listened to it like you know heavily or seriously i didn't really know what it was or where you know the i mean i think it was easier to come by then than it is now (laughs) i mean (laughs) like um you know you might see dizzy gillespie on sesame street that was sort of how it came across my path was like you know certain major figures in that music would show up on TV or, um, and one of them actually in the early mid eighties was Wynton Marsalis, um, who, you know, uh, I have various opinions about, um, in terms of his impact and so on, but then his kind of perspective on modern music, um, or on anything other than what he does right right but uh but i will say that he was like a he was a kind of like evangelist for the music in a way that actually um drew a lot of people in and still does and i was one of them so i would say that when i was you know in middle school or early high school i was uh, you know i was uh, affected by his presence in the world by his music, what the music he was making and uh, the kind of path he was forging, even though it was a very kind of neoconservative and um, uh, narrow um, perspective on music, you know, like he, for example, completely dismissed all hip hop and still does. So, you know, and I was listening to hip hop by the time he was saying stuff like that. So, um, you know, I was into Public Enemy and Tribe Called Quest, and even before that, like Run DMC and Stetsasonic, and you know, so, uh, so that here's somebody who's this kind of respected figure wearing a suit on TV <laughs> saying that hip hop's not music is kind of it was weird, right? And it's even weirder now, 30, 35 years later see somebody doing the same thing you know um it's really uh it starts to feel a little self-serving you know so i um you know i kind of keep that whole attitude far away from me uh because i collaborate with a lot of people whose music might not be called music to some people and and (laughs) that that to me is like a sign that you're doing something right was it a constant decision as you were learning music uh piano and, and and playing in the orchestra and all this stuff that you wanted to make sure you um stayed uh open to collaboration and experimental with music you were trying to play or listen to you know and i was just checking out whatever was on the radio or at the time even whatever was on mtv and like one of the things that was on mtv very early was herbie hancock's video for rocket for rocket yeah which is uh 
I don't know what you'd call it. It's dancing robots and a guy <laughs> yeah. playing a synthesizer that hung over his shoulder and he had a helicopter mic on for some reason. Like when he would sing into it, it would sound like a robot. So those, like I didn't know what was going glasses on. big glasses too, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, and then a few years later, I find this record, not even a few, like I don't know, it would have been 84 or 85 find this record called Herbie Hancock Quartet. I'm like, wait, the same guy from Rocket has a, what's this? Why is he in the jazz section of the library? You know, and so right. I pulled it out, and it's a quartet with this bassist named Ron Carter, this drummer named Tony Williams, and this trumpet player named Winton Marsalis. Like, okay, so this is the same, it looks like the same guy from the video. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's playing the piano. And so, like, that was a kind of, uh, it laid out uh, kind of like well okay I guess you can just you can do whatever you want you know like no <laughs> one's stopping this guy from you know basically tearing down the Grammys <laughs> with his live performance of Rocket right. with dancing robots that then suddenly start breakdancing and turn out to be human beings <laughs> <laughs> which is like you should if you haven't seen that performance it's like one of the greatest yeah televised moments of the 20th century um <laughs> but then like he can turn around and make this quartet album acoustic so you know jazz jazz like whatever that is i didn't really know what that was but it seemed like it was part of the same universe you know so it wasn't it wasn't apparent that there was something you were not supposed to do it was like well this guy just does whatever he wants and then also sting who was the you know the bassist and lead singer of the police had his little solo project where he was playing with Branford Marsalis who was Winton's brother and with like Kenny Kirkland who was this amazing piano player and uh, so it seemed like there was quite a lot of fluidity across these different musical communities you know it didn't seem like there was something that some people weren't supposed to do or something like that uh so I guess I just wasn't really concerned <laughs> ever <laughs> with like um, what I was you know doing what I was supposed to musically because it didn't seem like anyone else was either. That's great. I mean, for Herbie Hancock, I kind of have a, had a similar experience. Like I had heard, um, you know, Cantaloupe Island. I think probably the first time I was introduced to him, and then not too long after that, I heard Actual Proof, and I was like, oh my god like what is like <laughs> yeah that's some of the baddest shit ever yeah i mean I, and and i i finally got to see him live um my wife took me from her birthday this last year and getting to see actual actual proof live just completely like blew my mind <laughs> i mean it, it was like one of the coolest like experiences i got to see he came to visit my class one time at harvard and i we asked him about this word jazz because it means so many different things to different people and he basically said well that word can mean whatever we want it to mean. And that was kind of empowering. You know, I mean, I have, I keep my distance from that word in general because it's sort of, it's, you know, it sort of depends on who's using it and why. Usually yeah. they use it to kind of limit you to say like, oh, so you're basically just a jazz musician, right? Right. Something like that. Um, and historically, especially African-American musicians have mostly rejected the term. You know, like, it's not really of any use to anybody. It's certainly not to the artists themselves. 
um, Winton being the exception, of course. <laughs> but for the most part, like people just sort of don't need words like that to, to, to sort of limit their choices of what they're supposed to do or what they can do or what they can imagine, you know? What are your thoughts on the streaming music uh, era? Do you have any strong opinions one way or the other? It's true today and it always has been true even throughout the 20th century that most musicians, including most pop musicians, including Michael Jackson, for example, make most of their income in live performances. Mm -hmm. And that's true of even people who sold millions of records, you know. For a lot of us in my area of music, or my areas of music, whether, you know, none of that stuff is like selling millions of records. None of that music that I do or that any of, any of even Herbie does, mm -hmm. like none of that is selling millions, you know, it's selling thousands of copies but not millions <laughs> and you can't live off of selling thousands of records so you know so it's kind of about what impact does that have and i'm still trying to track it myself i mean i'm on this german label called ecn records yeah and for a long time they withheld all of their music from these streaming platforms yeah i had to buy your last couple uh really yeah. definitely yeah because i was waiting i was like oh it's not here so i'd buy yeah i like how you said that i had to buy oh you know yeah <laughs> i had the i I'm had the so honor sorry i'm so sorry for you <laughs> no no i actually bought digital and uh vinyl copies of I that's think, great Bre thank you and for doing that yeah. you know that's great yeah so uh, it means uh, that you have something you can live with you know yeah that will like last for yeah, no, I, I love Many, you know, I well love the physical uh the physical relationship with music and I think putting like on a record and then having to stand up and flip it over, there's something um like cerebral yeah. about that. I, and I think a lot of music uh, is meant to have a break in between. I don't know if you necessarily put that in your compositions, well, but there are things Cerebral like isn't the word I would use. I would probably say more like tactile and more physical. Uh -huh. Actually it's kind of the opposite. Phys physical. Like it's more that like you have to kind of get up and interact with the object and and the other thing is like if as you have this object for your in your life for years and decades, I mean I have records that I've had for thirty five years, you know. Yeah. Um and they wear down and stuff, but like they become kind of embedded with layers of memories of your from your life, which doesn't really happen with a file, you know. Right, totally. So it's kind of nice to have an object in your life that's like part of your life that also is a part of someone else's life because it has their music on it. Uh, how do you balance releasing, you know, records um, fairly frequently, right? Every year or so, every two years, uh, tour and, and, and play. Do you ever find yourself, um, you know, how, how do you keep yourself from getting burned out or sort of deciding to sit down and say, okay, I really want to do, you know, I can only do two of these three things or, or really only do one of these three things. Do you have a personal uh, strategy towards handling that? Um, <laughs> are you asking me about life work balance? Or yeah. Are you asking yeah. me about work work balance? <laughs> I guess it can go both ways, right? I mean, I, I, the... you know, there's something like, utterly invigorating and exhilarating about making music for people and among people and with people. And that's the reason I do any of this is so that I can do that. Like I will drag myself to the opposite side of the earth to do that. And it will be a pain in the ass 
and it'll break my back, you know, but then I'll get to do that. And that's the reason I do it is because of what that brings, you know, the, um, the joy and the kind of communal release of the self. That's like, um, you know, there's something, I mean, I said tribal earlier, but there's something like ecstatic about the sort of dissolution of the self into collective musical experience. And like I said, I'll pursue it to the ends of the earth, you know. And especially the way I see it, like dragging my body through time and space. To do that is like, that's the hard part, actually. That's the hardest part of all of it is, you know, sitting on planes and buses and trains and waiting, waiting rooms and things like that, <laughs> just so you can get to that place where you can do that. And uh, so that's like, you know, that to me is the bargain we made <laughs> coming into this is like, okay, you're going to bite through a certain amount of hardship in order to get to that place that has no, you can't even put a price tag on, you know, like to get to that um, level of human experience. That's, that's as real as anything that ever happened, you know, right? <laughs> like that's what music really brings you. It doesn't matter what it's called or, uh, you know, it's just about the fact that it brings you to that place and not just you, the player, but everybody in the room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, is there anything as you're traveling, is there anything you're, you're, you're listening to new or, uh, I guess new or old, any music you listen to a particular while traveling or any movies, TV shows you watch <laughs> <laughs> keep your head straight? Uh, yes. I don't know. I mean, like, um, Musically, I, I check out a lot of things. Uh, I was really into this electronic artist named Jaylen. Oh, yeah, Jaylen. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've been, I was checking her out a lot last year. and um, But then also, like, very recently, there was this release of a Coltrane, John Coltrane album from 1963 that mm -hmm. was just discovered, you know, that had been sort of sitting in the closet yeah both directions at once yeah both directions at once yeah. so i list i've been listening to that a lot for the last month or so um uh i watch a lot of sci-fi <laughs> <laughs> sort of like sci-fi nerd nice. my daughter and i we kind of go in on there's a show called the expanse do you know that show? yeah i'm familiar yeah sci-fi right or no yeah, longer it's actually, um, Amazon now, I think, or is about to be Amazon. Yeah, well, the yeah, right, right. The first two seasons are on there, but yeah, I guess they it got canceled and then picked up Amazon or something. So it's scientifically as accurate as they could possibly be, which is like beyond anything you see in any space shows or films. There have been all these science fiction shows and films that use the multiverse theory. So it's like you watch a whole season of a show and then they're like psych that was just in a parallel universe we're gonna start <laughs> over forget all of that you know we're right, actually it's a, a copy you, know, you know it's like it's that's just a that's pretty cruel it's like very disingenuous to sort of put viewers through that emotional arc and then just like pull the rug out you know <laughs> right. so i appreciate the fact that this is actually very basic science that's being thought through to its by me by which i mean like ballistics and like the <laughs> newtonian mechanics of like orbits around masses and things you know and uh 
the effects of radiation, the effects of different amounts of gravity on the body, and, and basically all these characters sort of live through all of that, and that's part of the story. It's like very, it's actually, it's much more plausible, and you kind of feel like this could happen. You know? Right, so that's interesting um, to you. That's good. I guess it's maybe just like the my past life as in physics kind of coming back, but it's also just like this is stuff that we learned in high school that should still hold when you get into science fiction, you know. Right. So, you know, I think people don't understand who don't listen to jazz don't understand how rooted in 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 politics and identity, uh maybe identity, but not politics jazz is and um you know, I think a lot of among a lot of jazz current jazz uh, musicians, I think I see you pop up the most in, in speaking out about um, kind of the current state of politics. So, do you have a quick thought around uh, the music you make as a um, you know a form of protest music or a form of uh, political voice um, that you think people could benefit from hearing? I think the basic fact is that this music that's been called jazz for a century is black music. It comes from black people. It comes from African-American culture, and it comes from that, you know, it originates from those circumstances of oppression and dispossession and lack of human rights, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it came about in its own way as a kind of protest. You know, it's protest music from the beginning in the sense that it's like an assertion of human dignity and human agency under circumstances that would deny its practitioners those rights you know so that's that's basically where it comes from it is black music you know and in the sense in that sense it has very much in common with with hip-hop of today and with soul music of the 70s uh it always has you know and for us as people of color who are not black you know, like what it, we have to figure out our relationship to that. The reason I'm in this area of music is to make contact with people across difference. So that involves, you know, both kind of understanding the underlying forces that gave rise to it, which are the same forces that gave rise to the movement for black lives, for example. You know, it's not about whether you quote-unquote understand jazz or something it's actually about whether you care about human beings no matter who they are no matter what their background is and whether especially whether you accept the, the fundamental humanity of black people and if so might they have something to say to you and will you listen <laughs> <laughs>